Hello, welcome to the Hacked Up Podcast. In today's episode, I've got David with me. David, what do you do? Hello, my name's David Barr. I'm a Principal Cert Consultant in Secure Impact. What's Cert for those who've never heard of it? And I guess, how do you spell it? Because it's an I, not an E. <laughs> I, sure. Yeah, it's uh, a Computer Instant Response Team. So that's uh, someone who will respond to a, a computer-related incident, be it some kind of loss of data, some malware, or anything along those lines. How on earth did you get into that line of work? Well, I think, like most people, it always starts with a uh, love of computers. I mean, certainly as a child, uh, I was always fascinated with computers. I mean, if I go slightly off tangent and mention, uh, as a kid, I used to buy terrible books that you'd uh, have loads of basic in and you'd have to copy them out to make a game. You spend all weekend copying this uh, code out and at the end of the weekend, they wouldn't compile and you'd have to go around hunting for your syntax errors. Um, and the game was always terrible as well, never worth it uh, from that point on. Um, you know, I uh, went uh, on to college, did some computing A-level, uh, picked up uh, Pascal as a useless language mostly nowadays, but uh, certainly I learned uh, a lot of uh, programming at that point. I actually went off to go to university to do biology, hmm. just because that was my highest mark, uh, but that <laughs> led me to research. During the research, it was actually quite technical, despite it being biology, we are using the MATLAB and various other kind of engineering uh, type things. and to work out something that's quite 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 boring unless you're interested in that field but uh yeah and then from that point on um i basically had enough of that and i wanted to do something a bit different so i joined the police but uh, it wasn't long after joining the police uh, that i ended up being pulled back to computers and i uh, found myself in the digital forensics lab so i had 15 years in the police and the last seven of those were in the digital forensics lab doing host-based forensics uh, on a, a variety of things uh, computers phones Smart TVs, games consoles, smart watches, whatever, you name it. It's interesting to hear because my background is uh, pen testing. So everybody makes the presumption that you get into pen testing because you're doing hacking on the bad side of things and then realize right. that you could get a job in it. So what I was wondering there would be like forensics as a hobby or something. I was wondering how you how you got into that. But it, it sounds like the background was relatively traditional academic is that right yeah i mean as far as actually going into forensics that was just a a marriage of an interest in computing and wanting to catch baddies uh and as i was in the police trying to catch baddies and i was all right at computers um you know the, the two led me together you know to get, go do digital forensics yeah just to be clear there i was talking about a stereotype of backgrounds and not admitting to cyber crimes on, on a podcast sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just just the the presumption that that people make of course do you find that your academic background prepared you at all then i see that you're you're talking about how the coding background was useful but maybe on the research side of things just that general approach and being methodical in your work that sounds like it might be aligned somewhat to forensics uh, potentially i guess so i mean certainly the scientific method uh, was kind of useful in that that respect the actual subject matter of course not because that was uh, a totally unrelated field but yeah i guess there was uh, some skills some you know soft skills i guess if you wanted to call them that i learned during my research uh, that was to some benefit in doing digital forensics for those who may be working in um, cybersecurity on the other side, so maybe blue team defensive, red team offensive, who've never looked at forensics from a job point of view, 
Can you give us a little insight into what it's like working in forensics? What What's your day-to-day job like? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I currently work for a, uh, a new company, so typically what I'm going through wouldn't be typical. Um, so what I'll do instead is talk about uh, what I did in law enforcement. So uh, during the past uh, seven years, I ended up, up being the lead digital forensics uh, for Merseyside Police for computers. But during that time, certainly in law enforcement, there's very much, it's a, it's a public body, so there's restrictions around resources, namely how many staff you've got to do the work. Uh, so certainly it's a high, high rate of work, which is good and bad. Uh, it's good in that you get a lot of experience very quickly. Um, it's bad that sometimes you want to spend a bit more time on a job uh, and you can't due to you know time constraints uh, or you have to prioritise other things. But yeah, I mean, work, working in law enforcement as well has its own uh, issues. Uh, you'll spend a lot of time preparing things for court and other legal institutions um like tribunals and other hearings He's, even if you're working for the police you don't just work uh for evidence for court you will actually provide evidence to like tribunals coroner's court uh, and other uh, other things like that um but yeah it's uh, it's good it's a good place to learn you'll get uh, a lot of uh, experience uh, hands-on experience very quickly uh, and you'll see a reasonable variety of jobs from very simple crimes to the most complex crimes You'll see them across a wide variety of devices. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a good place to learn. So it sounds like it could be quite varied as well. I think my presumption of forensics is it's all the same because your approach is probably the same and you're quite restricted in the way that you approach the problem space. But the list of devices that you gave us a second ago that you might be doing forensics work on sounds pretty, pretty varied. So is it every day is the same, but the specifics of the case changes or is the the technical side of the role quite varied as well? There's certainly uh, a lot of overlap. I mean, if you've got a, a Windows computer, uh, you'll be looking in the very similar places, you know, for the same artifacts. You know, the same artifacts are going to be in the same place near enough. I mean, obviously, change from version to version, but uh, the certain, you know, keys in the registry are always going to be in the same place. And but, but when it comes to what you're looking for, that will change from each job to each job. You know, be it you're investigating like a a major murder or a fraud or a hacking case or I don't know, a burglary. And you, you do get, of course, you get your, your crimes, which are cyber dependent. You get your hacking, of course, you need a computer to hack. But you find that you'll have evidence on, say, for example, a smartphone for the burglar who took his smartphone along. And he might have, for example, had a, a BT uh, app on his phone, which would then sync to the router uh, off the uh, victim's house and you can prove that he's in the proximity of that house uh, due to that uh, connection between his phone uh, and the uh, BT router in the house for example so there's all kinds of uh, offenses that you can find digital evidence on that aren't necessarily cyber dependent crimes uh, cyber enabled crimes or whatever you want to call them I do like that terminology because one of the things I do like to point out, of course, is things like fraud have existed for a lot longer than computers have. Sure. I was talking about ransomware recently, and um, of course, ransomware is now strongly linked to cryptocurrency, but ransomware predates cryptocurrency. It's it's just these days the convenient um, payment mechanism. So I imagine there's some, some similarities there where no, the, the crime isn't new, it's just the application of technology that's new. Absolutely. Absolutely that. So do you still keep up on research and things like that in the role? Is all of your time taken up with pulling devices apart to find out what happened in the past? Or do you find that you have to keep up to date with new techniques and that kind of thing? 
Yes, of course. I mean, when it comes to trying to find the stuff to prove a chain of events, you've got to know where it is. You've got to know it's there before you go looking for it, unless you accidentally fall over it. But that's quite rare. So, yeah, I mean, certainly if you come across an artifact which you're not 100% certain on, you think it's useful, but you're not too sure, it's not too well written up, there's not much in the public domain about it, then ultimately, yeah, you have to test that artifact, be it, you know, spinning up a VM and uh, installing that software that's made the artifact or doing that thing that's made that artifact and then observing it uh, and seeing what it actually does. Uh, I mean, that's uh, you know, a method of research to validate your own findings if there's, if there's nothing that you can see on, online or, you know, wherever else. So how does your work, how... Generically speaking, would forensics work be different now that it's, I guess, uh, post-police life? Because I can understand that, you know, when crimes are occurring and things like that, that the police will want to investigate those. But um, how does it work on the private side of things? Certainly. Well, when the, the forensics work in private, there's often there's a crime, but not always. Uh, and even if there is a crime, your victim, who you're there to help and you're there working for, might not necessarily be too bothered about catching the person as such they just want their system up and running as soon as possible you know they want to stop whatever data has been pulled from the network to, you know being stopped immediately they want to do what you know they want to stop the bleeding and that's of course you know the most important thing for them and you've got to remember that that you're working for them granted you know if there is a crime committed you will still have to apply your forensic techniques because even if they don't want to necessarily push that as a priority it may it may not have a choice. It's not uh, their decision to uh, prosecute. Ultimately, then end of the day, you know, it's the crown's decision to prosecute. Uh, however, you know, we are working for the customer first, and if that's not a priority for them, that's not a priority for them. And it's as simple as that. You, you mentioned that the the private companies who you know have an incident that occurs might not care about the the crime side of things. That's probably a bit harsh to put it. I probably didn't word that very well. but uh, That's what I was going to follow up with is, do you think that's a good or a bad thing? Because I'd almost argue that that is a good thing. Because if they can remain disinterested and just enable the police to do what the police are there to do, and they can just focus on their business, it would, I would imagine, presuming here, stops people treading on each other's toes and that kind of thing. Yeah, potentially. I mean, certainly the, the people who work in the business, their priority, their first priority must be the business. Um, and it'd be, you know, silly to kind of ask them to consider anything else. Yeah, I mean, as far as the police investigation goes, all too often, I'm sure you're well aware of this as well, it's not going to end up very far. Uh, not not all the time, uh, but certainly the, the police have, uh, let's put it this way, if it comes back to some IP address in Russia, what are you going to do? <laughs> there's not a lot you can do is there? all too often in, in investigations i wouldn't even say the trail go, goes cold a lot of the time the trail's blazing hot but there's nothing you can do about it um and it can be quite frustrating uh, for the law enforcement side to kind of have something that you can't follow up on but that's life and it can actually lead to a lot of wasted time and effort but that's the way it is that's the international nature of uh, the internet i guess yeah, that was actually, I was writing that question down to say, right. <laughs> is it often not the case that, you know, the the criminal that you're following is, is just abroad and might be in a, a country that does not have a good uh, extradition relationship with the United Kingdom? Um, All yeah, too often. It's, <laughs> Very it's, often. <laughs> you, you jumped me on that one. So another thing then, thinking of, of my experience on the offensive side of things, one of the things that we very often do is take a look at, at prior breaches. And in particular, we might be um, specifically interested in the, the tools that attackers have used previously, the techniques that attackers have used previously. Um, does that copy over to the forensics world? Do you often follow um, previous 
previous investigations to see if there's anything new there. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's certainly important to be aware of uh, new techniques. Certainly, if you're less looking at, say, for example, someone's activity uh, around like a I know the example before a burglary, you know, that's always going to be the same. But certainly if you're looking at some kind of um, some kind of unauthorized access or hacking, whatever you want to call it, um, and you have, you know, some new tools and tactics you need to be aware of. If that's what you're trying to prove, you need to be aware of these tools. There's no point kind of just looking at, say, for example, you've got the suspect's computer and you're going through their bash history. Um, you know, you've got to be kind of aware of what commands they're using. If you're trying to prove an, an offence, uh, you need to know what they, what commands they're typing in or at least be able to find out what they are and what they do uh, quite easily before you can prove an offence. You know, it's, there's no point saying, oh, yeah, he's hacked this IP address by looking at a bash log uh, and then he's, he's not done anything like that at all. Do you ever find yourself double guessing yourself or, or feeling you have to, to go back over and over to make sure that you, you have interpreted the series of events correctly? The, the reason that I ask this is uh, during a pen test, we're often doing five or six different things at once. And we're talking to different systems and trying to map, find vulnerabilities and exploit. So imagine that from the uh, defender side of things, if they were trying to look through the logs of what we had been up to, it must be quite a big mess. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose one advantage that the defender would have, I guess, is that they can kind of take the time. Of course, there are exceptions, um, but you can, you know, as I say, there are exceptions, but you can kind of take your time. You know, the incident has happened. Hopefully, you know, you've stopped the leak, you know, or you've done whatever you need to do, but the incident has happened and you're reacting to it. Uh, so there is one thing you kind of do normally have, and that's that's time. And you can spend that time and go over stuff. And when you go over it, you might have missed something, so you can go over it again and again, and maybe get another set of eyes. And generally, reacting to something, you will take a lot longer to do it than perhaps the person who's actually done the thing that you're trying to prove. As far as double-guessing yourself, I tend to stick to the facts and then only kind of interpret those towards the end. So reports, for me, tend to be quite dry until the end, and it almost reads like a statement of facts, which... You know, can be quite can be quite a dry read until the end when you get to the conclusions and you start tying those facts together. Um, I always think of it as like building a, a brick wall, uh, and I make sure all my individual bricks are cast iron, and they're only little single points of data. But then towards the end in the conclusion section, I'll start piecing all those little points together to make a, a cohesive argument. It's interesting to hear you say that because I almost try and write. Uh, pen test reports in the exact opposite way like I want the first line of the report to be what was achieved at the end of the story and then we'll go into the testing narrative in terms of you know this was how we, we pulled that thing off because of course you want to where possible uh, grab the person's attention grab the organization's attention I think a lot of uh, security stuff can be like you said dry boring very much the same over time so if we've done something sure. good we want to we want to shout that in, in the very opening paragraph but I, I do see what you're saying about you want to establish the context before kind of making any major points. Sure. Yeah, it's quite a traditional point. And I think there's probably no real right or wrong way to do it. I mean, certainly um, I've handed 30, 40 page reports over to people before and they've gone straight to the contents page, looked up the conclusion, the conclusions page and there's read the last two pages. And I'm thinking, why did I bother writing all those other 38 pages if that's all you're going to do? Uh, but of course you need to you know that's part of what you're relying on. And certainly when you um, go to court and you're cross-examined and asked these uh, questions, you know, you've got to be able to, on the spot, be able to defend them against other technical people who the defence will have instructed 
for example, or the or the offense, depending what side you're on. Mm, absolutely. So when when my organizations engage the services that you're talking about here on, on the private side of things, I guess for some companies, I can almost think them feeling, well, if they get hacked, then they'll just rebuild all of the machines and pretend it didn't happen. I presume that's a bad thing for a company to do. But but at what point would a company be calling you up? Sure, that's uh, absolutely you know a, a valid question. I mean, assuming that they have done all their backups well, you know that that's kind of normally a foolproof way of you know get, getting rid of everything. Or is it? How clean are your backups? You know, how do you know that uh, there's not something in your backups which all you're going to do is restore? You know, <laughs> you know, you, you know just restore a handful of machines uh, riddled again, or from day one. You know, uh, with all kinds of malware. So you know. Sure, that is often sometimes the advice we'll give, you know, the, the fact, you know, what backups have you got and can you rebuild from them? And then ultimately we'll go down that route. Other times it may not be necessary, you know, might not be necessary at all. And other times doing so will be harmful. Also as well, if there's a situation where a hacker is in the network, tipping your hand too early can potentially be a bad thing. It, it depends. I mean, certainly if it's in the middle of exfiltrating data right now, that data is sensitive, then yeah, I, I don't think you're going to mess around and you're going to tip your hand straight away and pull the plug, as it were, uh, if you found them in the network. However, there, there might be certain situations where you don't want to tip your hand too early. And if, the, if, you, if you're quite certain they're not doing much harm, uh, then you might want to allow them to continue in that controlled environment for a short period of time until you can actually decide what they've actually done and get a proper extent of the damage they've, they've caused. Yeah, I can understand why companies might spot malicious traffic and then want to immediately shut everything down and immediately look to, to contain it. But I could imagine a scenario where an attacker is in the, you know, compromised a perimeter, they're inside in the internal network, but they're still in the early stages, maybe system mapping, network mapping, that kind of thing. And maybe sure. you would want to, in one of those instances, monitor them, find out what, what they've done and how far they've got without necessarily taking any action that, that they notice. Is is that the kind of thing you mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any advice you'll give uh, to a client is going to depend on their network, their specific uh, set of circumstances, what data they've got to risk, uh, to lose, and all kinds of other factors. Um, and that's assuming it's it's a, you know, a hacker as well. Um, a, a, an incident might be anything from uh, malware, be it through an email or or something, or you know someone's done something a bit silly with a USB pen that they shouldn't have done, or if it's perhaps just some data loss, could also be an instance as well, uh, or um, it could be uh, the result of a, a rogue employee, just to name a few examples. You know, if an employee's done something that they shouldn't have done, maybe they've they've leaving and then taking their list of customers with them, or they're disgruntled on the way out, they, they format a server or something. You know, um, trying to prove this. Uh, certainly in those cases, I make the point. The argument where forensics is potentially more important um, because you kind of have a good suspect already. The suspect lives in the UK and there may be serious um, kind of uh, there may be a recourse to financial compensation from the from the uh, suspects in the investigation, uh, which if, if it becomes criminal anyway, or in fact civil. Yeah, I, I, I think very often people jump on, oh, we've been hacked. I was looking at... Um, some incidents with cloud providers recently, just just reading the uh, the retros on them, where it was you know things just breaking, our employees turning the wrong servers off, and that kind of thing. But very mm. often people pre presume it's oh they've they've been hacked or some incidents gone on. So I, c I could imagine that 
uh, actually in a lot of cases it might just be somebody exceeding authorization or uh, as you say you know destroying some service on the way out where you actually have a good idea of who who, who it was sure i mean we've certainly seen cases uh, like this that have been reported to Merseyside police where a disgruntled uh, webmaster uh, for a company uh, based in merseyside uh, on the way out um, set a uh, a major discount for all the goods on the uh, portal and of course the good people of uh, Merseyside uh, like a bargain and uh, they were yeah, shopping for all sorts left right and center it actually cost the business uh, a lot of money and the person was we provided evidence to say you know that he'd done what he was suspected to have done and what dates and times he's done it that went off to court and they were able to recover some compensation for damage caused not much but some because a lot of people uh, often think a fraud is just taking money from someone uh, where actually a fraud isn't um, a fraud is uh, gain or loss so the action that he took there intending that company to lose money that's actually a fraud uh, in definition yeah i think um this is the problem isn't it when you're you're an outsider looking and you maybe often got quite a simplistic view of how these things might might go do you think forensics is changing much as a field? Do you think, you know, aside from new devices coming out and that kind of thing, do you think there's going to be any major changes over the next couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like almost anything that's uh, on the front edge of technology, change will always be uh, quite rapid. I mean, we're currently in the process in forensics and seeing, uh, well, it, it's not exactly new, uh, but certainly a lot of our evidence is now coming from cloud sources. And that's I mean, that's that's not happened yesterday. That's been ongoing for some time. Uh, but certainly that will accelerate over time. And when I uh, first started doing forensics uh, seven years ago, that was a pretty niche area and almost, I won't necessarily say totally unheard of, but uh, pretty rare. And now it's absolutely everywhere and should always be a consideration. Yeah, that's one of the things with digital transformation, like moving to the cloud, where companies may feel like um, they've got everything ready. You know, they've got um, cloud engineers and things like that. And they've got cloud security, but maybe forensics and backups and incident responses, uh, things that they forget because it is it is different. For sure. Absolutely. How concerned should companies be about making sure that they're uh, prepared to do a forensics uh, investigation? Is it just the case of when something bad happens, they could ring yourself, your company, or is it something they should be prepping for now? Absolutely. I mean, I'd hate to uh, give advice that would put our uh, company out of business, but uh, if everyone actually prepared for the worst case scenario, you know, immediately, in fact, even kind of stuck to good practices that would mean that the worst case scenario wouldn't even happen in the first place, that'd be ideal. Of course, we don't live in an ideal world, just as well for us, uh, keeps us in the business, I guess. But certainly there's uh, all kinds of uh, things you should be uh, doing, you know, to, to prevent uh, these type of incidents. But when they do happen, you do need a robust plan. Whilst we can assist with plans, and certainly we've got some of our own plans that we've seen work in other companies and so on, it's, it'll never be as good as a plan that a company has designed themselves for their own departments and tested themselves. You know, uh, it's going to be their own plan and they're going to know it works because, hope, well, hopefully they'll know it works because hopefully they've tested it. So, yeah, certainly uh, there's that. What kind of things should the, the plans include then? Is it just making sure that everything's uh, backed up and uh, you've, you've turned logging on on everything? Or is there anything uh, <laughs> maybe out there like uh, kind of gotchas that companies might forget about? Sure. Yeah, I mean, 
obviously, if you want to find out what's happened uh, afterwards, log all the things, uh, log absolutely everything, you know, for sure. Yep, backups, of course, you know, that's uh, another obvious one. Backups are often kind of uh, overlooked, though, like they're not retained for long enough. So you'll get these situations where backups are infected uh, because they don't go back far enough. You know, it's literally only the past seven days or past 14 days or something, which, you know, potentially is going to be useless, uh, depending on the company, of course. Yeah, I mean, there's all, all sorts. I mean, one thing that is really kind of low tech, but worth mentioning is the simple things like communication. It'd be amazing when things start to fail, when, you know, you can't even make a phone call anymore because your Skype's down or whatever you're using. And you don't know, you don't you actually have a offline uh, storage of uh, phone numbers. Uh, you don't know how to get hold of people. You can't communicate with people. You kind of, you know a name, but you don't know a phone number. You can't get hold of a phone number. And, you know, li- little simple things when you're undergoing a major instance uh, in, a, in a business can be pretty difficult, even even the simple things, unless you do the sensible thing and you have your, you know, offline uh, copies of uh, communication methods and, and so on. I mean, yeah, there's lots of things someone can do to prepare and there's, you know, entire documents dedicated to this. But yeah, certainly there's uh, that, that's a simple low tech thing that is often overlooked. It, it very often is the, the low tech things though, isn't it? I love working Absolutely. with companies through their disaster recovery and even just like minor incident response stuff. If companies don't test those processes, very often they can be quite difficult. Silly things like, oh, you know, we don't need to worry about this. We've, we've got cybersecurity insurance and it's like, sure. do you know what your policy number is? <laughs> yeah. If you ring them up, are they, they going to know who you are? Yeah. And that, that's it. I mean, uh, cybersecurity insurance, uh, you know, it's, I mean, I, 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 get, I get the fact it's expensive, but uh, certainly, you know, it's it's worth considering if, you're, if you've got a lot to lose and it's worth insuring. As simple as that. Absolutely. If I have read the schedule correctly for our Unlocked event in, in London, you're, you're speaking at Unlocked. Could you perhaps give us uh, a test of what it might be that you're talking about without necessarily disclosing all of the interesting parts of your, of your talk? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. What, why should people come, come to your talk? Well, uh, hopefully, uh, it's going to be an interesting talk. It's in relation to EncroChat, which is, if you've not heard of it, it's a, uh, well, no longer exists. And that's because it's been taken down by a uh, Europol uh, effort. It's possibly one of the most significant hacks that have benefited law enforcement uh, in my lifetime and probably will be for some considerable time. For example, Merseyside Police now are still going through masses of uh, you know high-level criminals that are uh, being investigated and being sentenced for serious offences. You know, we're talking sentences you, you, you tend to only get in America. You know, we're talking like 25 years and, and things like that. I think sentences you don't normally hear in the UK. So these are top-level criminals involved in all kinds of offences from murders, uh, firearms importation, drugs importation and all sorts. We're all talking on this platform, which was designed to be super secure and safe from prying eyes, specifically safe from law enforcement. However, I mean, this company has been around for a period, well, was around for a period of time. Certainly it it grew quite substantially in 2016, but after a while, people started to notice it and government agencies started to devote resources to uh, tackling the problem uh, because it was now an international problem, uh, crime gangs all across Europe and, you know, some uh, in the world, but particularly it was a European, uh, major European problem. We're using this network. So through a collaborative effort with the French and Dutch, they managed to uh, hack the servers, push out an update and harvest lots and lots of data. And all this data is basically all these criminals talking openly 
on their supposedly secure platform uh, about how many kilograms of cocaine or they're going to be importing, who they're going to kill, uh, how they're going to get the firearms and all this kind of stuff, where they're hiding it all, which actually leads to some, obviously, some very serious conversations uh, in there, especially when they're discussing, you know, who they're going to kill. I mean, you, you've got to, you know, the, the police officers that are managing these these jobs had to, they wanted to sit there as long as possible to see, because every day they're getting more and more evidence but when someone's life's threatened, you know, you have to obviously act. You can't, you know, you can't gamble with that. So it's a bit of a, a balancing act of when you act to save a life and how long you can leave it to gather the evidence. And that must be a horrible decision to make. Luckily, I didn't have to make that. Ultimately, enough evidence was uh, gathered and then the criminals that are using it started to realise what was going on as front doors all up and down uh, Europe, uh, <laughs> all down the UK and all across Europe were getting put through. And yeah, they kind of eventually had to stop using it. Uh, Encrich had themselves also put out a notification saying that they noticed that they've uh, they've pushed out a, a bad APK package, which is then basically listening on you, listening in on you. So uh, yeah, they, they told the users... But yeah, it's a it was a great a great kind of success story of when law enforcement across Europe can work together uh, for the good of you know all of its uh, you know nation states. And that is at London Olympia on the twenty eighth of September. So there's still time to to register to see that talk. Um, it sounds very interesting. I remember when the Encro Chat stuff first came to light, and just as you said, one of the most significant events from a law enforcement point of view so definitely excited to, to hear you talk something a little bit different to to close out though we've been talking about the kinds of work that you do and um how you approach your job and that kind of thing but if somebody's listening into this and the role that you now do sounds interesting to them how can people set themselves up for a career in forensics yeah i mean nowadays i dare say it's a little bit easier because there's more resources online certainly i think uh, any veterans uh, that are out there uh, older than myself even would have loved <laughs> some of the resources that you have you know available uh, nowadays on the internet but there's all sorts for whatever way you wanted to go if you wanted to go uh, red team or blue team there's all kinds of uh, freely available resources out there and that will certainly be enough to give you a taste of you know if it's for you or not and certainly get a feel for what part of cyber security you know if you're drawn to so i'd start off with all those free resources and then from there i think they naturally tend to lead on uh, to each other whilst doing those you'll find recommendations and pointers to try something else but there are there's a massive uh, wealth of community information out there these days which is great and i wish it was around about 15 years earlier but there we go absolutely and i think one of the things with cybersecurity in general is it's such a big field that for people looking to get into security, working out which part of it interests you, be it defensive, offensive, forensics, whatever, um, can be a tough thing. So the fact that there's so many resources available now just to see if it is something that grabs your passion is um, is so much better than it used to be. Absolutely. Well, uh, David, thanks for coming on. Is there anything that you want to mention to the audience or anything you want to highlight before we close out? Uh, no, not at all. I uh, just want to say uh, thank you for having us um, and myself and... Uh, all of Secure Impact, I want to say thanks. And yeah, thank you very much. How can people find out more about the work that you do? And I guess in particular, Secure Impact? Well, we've got a website. So you can always go on to uh, Secure Impact, uh, search for us there. We've got some case studies. You can read about some of our previous work. Uh, and it's got all our contact information. Uh, should you want to contact any of us, then please don't hesitate. Great, David. Thank you for coming on. Thank you.